0: The following program contains language not suitable for all ages. Discretion advised. Last we checked in, the anime industry was struggling. Rising competition matched with the economic crisis of 07 and 08 caused half the industry to shutter its doors within the next five years. And even without economic obstacles, the physical media and broadcast focused industry was still facing the looming threat of piracy. I'm Udoi Travis, and this is the final episode of Anime in America. By this point, anime was already available to stream legally and had been as early as 2002 with Valkyrie Media Partners' video on demand service Anime Network. It had been a mainstay on Netflix since back when the company was still mailing out DVDs, which it technically still is, but if you already knew that, chances are your internet connection isn't strong enough to listen to this podcast. Funimation and Viz had already made the jump to digital with major streaming services Hulu and, uh, Juiced. Do you remember Juiced? Because I do not. What the fuck is Juiced? Both inked deals along with the now defunct UK anime distributor Gong in 2008 to stream select anime series from their catalogs. More on that in anime in the UK. Haha. Just kidding. Unless… maybe? Video hosting websites were presenting a major problem to anime distributors. However, the internet had entered the age of YouTube and new sites and services where literally anyone could upload a video without any kind of quality control were rising and falling daily and with them fell the final remaining barrier between consumers and pirates, technological literacy. Arr. The online ecology was primed for pirates to step out of IRC and torrenting sites and start putting their work on streaming video pages that literally anyone could use. Unburdened by approvals and quality assurance, piracy had been beating official releases in terms of speed for decades and now suddenly was standing shoulder to shoulder with official services and availability. But already the seed of a new era had been planted, And among the thousands of video hosting sites was an anime-focused
1: page run by a group of young Bay Area techies. We started to just tinker around nights and weekends. We were watching StarCraft replays, we were watching um, anime content, and every week it was like, well, let's load up this torrent and let's wait for the Naruto to come out. And now we have to see to a bunch of people before we can watch and let's hope we don't get a virus or whatever. And it was like, it it was like a lot of work. Um, and then we're like, well, why don't we just make a website that people just click, just like YouTube, and just and just start, start watching. And coincidentally, YouTube took off in, I'll say, 0- 05, 06, when it was really starting to, to hockey stick. And so we kind of said, well, that's kind of the model. YouTube, there was many other sites at the time. Now it's just YouTube. But Veo, Meta Cafe, like Stage 6, like all these sites. And we're like, what if we just did one that, you know, pe- people would upload content that you normally just can't watch and anime just made a lot of sense to us because we couldn't find how to watch it anywhere except for you know torrent sites. So that's kind of the, the chronology up until we, we founded the company in uh, in middle of 6.
0: that is Kungao founder and former CEO of Crunchyroll. It wasn't always the biggest catalog of anime in the world. Back then, it was a small website he and his friend designed to host anime and StarCraft videos, which quickly turned from a passion project into an ever-increasing logistical and financial struggle as site traffic
1: began to balloon. We, we ran up a bandwidth bill pretty quickly because um, bandwidth was really expensive, uh, especially back then. It was like... Know, 20 times more expensive than it is now and I remember we were just maxing out our credit cards because we didn't we didn't We weren't really making money. There wasn't a way to monetize with video ads There wasn't video ads to begin with So yeah, that was the situation in early 07. So um, We first it was raising with some angels. We okay. we said uh, We approached some angels. They were um, they they were angels for our first company my first company uh, and they had gotten a return from you know that investment uh, and I asked them if they wanted to invest into the new company, and they were, you know, they were very supportive and they were right behind us. And then within about a month or two after the angels invested, the, the site just continued to grow, and it was uh, showing up on Alexa, which was not the, you know, the Amazon speaking thingamajig. It was a website where you can look at other people's traffic and how they were trending over time. And um, I think that's when VC started knocking on our doors. They saw that. Uh, the website was just hockey sticking and blowing up. And and they approached us and said, you know, they wanted to invest. And so from about I don't know, August, September through December of 2017, you know, we started talking to a lot of VCs. And then uh, we found the right VC to to invest into our business. And then we raised about $4 million bucks into the company. Uh, and then that was when we started paying off all of our credit card bills. Uh, and then we started to... Uh, you know get more servers uh, starting to hire uh, full-time employees because we weren't paying anyone or you know ourselves at, at that time so that everyone can just work on this uh, you know full full-time
0: that's angel investors of course not actual angels which uh, in some circles you might believe are fake depends we'll leave that up to God who is real?
1: In 2008, uh, after we raised VC funding, we said, "Well, we need to figure out how to like license this content. We need to figure out how to compensate creators, yeah. and and then uh, we need to figure out um, how to how to make money for for this content." And so, um, that at that time, I think the company was like six, maybe seven people, and everyone was an engineer. And so, uh, I I drew the lucky or unlucky straw of having to figure out how to like figure out Japan, the the first thing, you know, I had to do was like, figure out who do I, who do I talk to? And I I didn't know who to talk to. And so fortunately, one of our uh, advisors uh, was uh, a guy who uh, was at the time the CEO of a company called BitTorrent. Um, And he, along with Bram, who created the BitTorrent protocol, had set up a office in Tokyo, where BitTorrent was a uh, a thing you can license to put onto like um, a NAS drive or a router where you could do you know tor- on your NAS or your or your router so you don't have to turn on your computer to do that and so um, they had a uh, a business out there and so I talked to him about who to talk to and he said well uh, you should talk to this guy called Vince Shortino he works for me at BitTorrent in Japan and so in um, March. Uh, of 2008, I went to Japan, met up with Vince, and then uh, the more we talked, the more I was like, you know, well, this guy's awesome. Like, he knows everything about Japan because he's been there for 20 years. Uh, He speaks fluent Japanese. Uh, Maybe he can help us to navigate Japan. And so um, he joined full-time, and then we then set about going to all the major Japanese anime companies and he didn't have all the connections either so it was just we found someone who, who knew someone who knew someone and then we contacted him and just kept going down the chain until we were able to get to we were able to get to uh the, the key the key folks at uh, all the major major companies and then uh as it relates to subtitling and putting content um once we figured out the business side and we, we were able to get a deal with tv tokyo um, we had to figure out how to legitimately subtitle the content because we were getting the files before TV broadcasts. We can't just uh, put it out there for a fan sub group to, to fan sub because yeah. we, we wouldn't know or be able to trust that. Um, and so we started to uh, hire people uh, to help us to subtitle. Um, and it ended up being that a lot of the people who per- used to participate in the fan sub community were the best people to subtitle. And so they were able to receive some compensation and credit for their work doing it officially, legitimately, um, through the, you know, the Crunchyroll the uh, business.
0: So, Kuhn just went to Tokyo, linked up with Vince, and got all the major anime publishers on board. Pretty simple, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. You're stupid for thinking otherwise. Turns out it was pretty difficult, not only to sell them the whole idea of streaming media, but also to convince
1: those publishers to
0: license out their valuable IP to a pirate site.
1: Interesting side story is, if you remember when we previously talked about uh, VHS, that was uh, pirated and distributed by fans for fans, Mm -hmm. very analogous to what we were doing. Uh, That started a company called AD Vision by John Ledford, who um, I would say is probably the pioneer of anime home video distribution Um, and today the company is called Sentai uh, but he helped us to introduce us to TV Tokyo uh, in like the fall of 2008 Um, and and then when we got to TV Tokyo um, they were you know they were very pragmatic about the situation Um, but I would say not everyone was pragmatic uh, we would have conversations. A lot of conversations were, were, were something in tune of, "Hey, um, we, you know, we've got a website. There's a lot of fans of your content on there. We know it's not legal. We want to get the license to, to legally do it." And then they would just not try to make eye contact. They would they would like act visibly angry. They would be shaking, and they would they would say, "You know, you're you're, you know, you're you're stealing from us. You're pirating our content." And we said, "Well, we want to make it legitimate." And if you want us to take all of your content down today, we will, but that's going to send all the fans to dark corners uh, to to, to get access to your content. because you really want to watch it. And we want to make a a bright lit place for you and and your content uh, to be distributed worldwide. Um, And so I think TV Tokyo really got that. Um, And so we were able to um, work with them to figure out how to license Naruto legitimately and at the end of 08 we announced together with TV Tokyo that they would be we would be simulcasting Naruto for the first time <laughs> within like an hour of TV broadcast starting like um, Jan I don't know Jan 7th or something 2009 so that's kind of how you know, that arc started
0: On New Year's Eve 2008, Crunchyroll deleted all of its illegal videos and fan-contributed content, converting to an official streaming service that began simulcasting Naruto Shippuden in January 2009. On the Japan side, it would remain an uphill battle over the years as Crunchyroll continued to shop itself out and prove itself to other publishers, but in America, it was a deal that shook the entire industry. Streaming anime was just beginning to creep onto platforms like Netflix and Hulu in 2008, but no one was simulcasting. At the time, Naruto was the single most popular anime in the world, and suddenly it was on a brand new service that was putting it up to stream within an hour of its Japanese broadcast. For anyone who doesn't know, simulcasting is a portmanteau of the words simultaneous and broadcasting, and I think based on those two words, you can guess that it means simultaneous broadcasting. This was a foundational shift for both the established industry and for pirates, where before pirates had speed on their side, they couldn't hope to turn around episodes of Naruto within an hour. Crunchyroll's agreement with TV Tokyo got them all the materials in advance of the broadcast to allow them to do the legwork pre-release, which would eventually shrink down the window to be near simultaneous with the Japanese TV broadcast. Suddenly, the fastest and easiest way to watch new anime was once again an official source. Along with their new offering, Crunchyroll also established a new framework for the streaming business. Although Crunchyroll's original catalog was small, many fans considered it a win-win. Crunchyroll had a large pre-existing community that trusted the brand, and now it was beating the pirates in speed and had a clear financial throughline from your wallet to the people making the product. So Crunchyroll started to grow. And it started to grow fast. Suddenly, industry titans like Funimation, Viz, and the recently established Aniplex of America found themselves having to play catch-up. This started the simulcast wars, a nearly 10-year-long race for each of these companies to launch their own branded streaming services and get their products out alongside the official Japanese broadcast. And of course, everyone tried to get in. And I mean everyone. Every single person. But quick aside before I get into that. This pivot to simulcasting is a huge moment for anime itself, but that moment had another lasting effect on licensing that's definitely worth mentioning. Anime itself got more opportunities. Licensing companies always have to be strategic to make money, but the shift towards streaming as the primary vehicle changed the economics of anime. You might say it disrupted the industry.
1: I think when when you start off as, as, um, when you start off and become so successful like Funimation in home video, uh, sometimes it's tough to switch gears and disrupt your own business right um, and so we were we were disrupt disruptors we're definitely in way smaller but um, you know we had to be we had to be nimble um, and there were a lot of content that Funimation just doesn't license because for them it doesn't make sense to go get um, Haikyuu <laughs> It wouldn't ever sell on home video, and that was the only way they made money. So uh, that wasn't interesting for them, uh, but it was interesting for us through the internet. Um, there's a lot of sports anime fans who love that genre, who love the the, the, the fact that sports is just a vehicle for telling you know stories, and um, they're willing to subscribe, they're willing to watch online, and so we had an advantage in in, in
0: that regard. Before our modern era where there's just about 100% licensing rate every season, tons of titles would get skipped over because anime distributors in the US had to judge new titles through the lens of a physical release and decide if a production looked like it would sell enough units to make up for their investment. A streaming model meant it was not only easier for each anime to find its audience online, but a lower price tag since you didn't necessarily have to add the cost of designing, manufacturing, and distributing DVDs, and a title's performance online could act as a testing ground to inform your later decisions regarding a physical release. You can make the argument that this also hurts anime's longevity since physical releases are often all that is left of a title if the license enters limbo, and that's certainly legitimate, but as a counterpoint, we might not have gotten Haikyuu. So there's that. That's enough of an argument, right? Okay, back to the thing that I was talking about. Everybody, in all caps, Funimation was the quickest to follow, streaming a near simulcast of Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood the very next season, four days behind the Japanese broadcast, which was fast by industry standards but still gave Pirates plenty of wiggle room for one of the biggest shonen releases of the 2010s. <laughs> Viz followed next with Inuyasha the final act in the fall season, which they simulcast on Hulu. This was the pattern for about two years as other companies experimented with simulcasts of top priority titles, and Crunchyroll continued to grow, not only in subscribers, but their number of simulcast titles each season. Then Anime News Network tried to get in on the action. You you know, the, um, the news site. The one with news in its name? One of the most trafficked anime sites in the world at the time, Anime News Network wanted in on the game, and after picking up some catalog titles from the likes of Aniplex, Bandai, and Sentai, They made their simulcasting debut, starting with Oreimo in fall 2010. Oreimo is, uh, I will say the definitive title in a genre of anime known as SISCON, upon which I have refused to elaborate, but you can Google at your own risk. Unfortunately, ANN pulled a Funimation and someone took advantage of an exploit in their system and managed to get a hold of the second episode of Oremo pre-release, and ANN was also forced to suspend its simulcast because syscon dudes mean business. At this point though, they were probably already on their way out of the streaming business. Despite the large amount of traffic ANN commanded on its editorial side, it was unable to leverage that into streaming views and it quietly wound down its catalog over the years to once again focus exclusively on news. Because they're a news site. They do news. The fall 2010 season also saw the launch of Tunzaki, a creation of none other than the now-failing 4Kids. It started with a catalog of 72 mostly non-exclusive titles, and honestly, the streaming site may have been one of the best things 4Kids ever created, a community-focused platform that attracted even longtime critics of the anime licensor. Unfortunately, the site couldn't survive 4Kids' financial woes, and it was ultimately killed likely as a result of the 2012 lawsuit we mentioned in the previous episode. In 2012, Tunzaki suffered the one-two punch of losing its entire Yu-Gi-Oh! catalog and having its site mysteriously go down for three whole months. I don't know about you, but I would cancel my subscription after uh, probably a couple of hours, actually. Ultimately, the site's ownership was passed to Konami, and it was later shut down in 2013. In 2012, Viz announced its own online streaming channel called Neon Alley, which was kind of like a TV channel, but Viz, anime, and on the internet. That, you know, uh, was the whole concept of streaming? That's what we were talking about this episode. Unfortunately, it didn't fly, and by early 2014, Viz cut a deal with Hulu that added Neon Alley as a content channel to the larger streaming services menu. Within just a few months, the Neon Alley name was dropped altogether as Viz's content was fully incorporated into Hulu's service. 2013 saw the introduction of a brand new face in American anime streaming, which, if I were a company like Crunchyroll or Funimation at the time, I probably would have greeted with hostility. Daisuke was founded by a Japanese consortium led by Asatsu DK, whose investors included major studios like Toei Animation, Aniplex, Sunrise, and TMS with the intention of streaming their anime globally. If that wasn't scary enough, they were later joined by another $3 million in investments from a who's who of Japanese publishers like Kodansha, Shueisha, Shogakukan, and Kadokawa. Included in their starting catalog were Aniplex hits like Puella Maji Madoka Magica and Sword Art Online, as well as a large number of Sunrise Mecha anime. And I cannot emphasize enough that the vibe at the time was that this was the apocalypse for international licensing. Japan's going to hold on to all their titles, choke everybody else out, and run their own one-stop shop for anime. But obviously that didn't happen, so what went wrong? Well, nobody's entirely sure, but probably a number of things. By 2013, America's short romance with mecha anime like Gundam Wing, Escaflowne, and Evangelion had long since come to an end, and it was Gundam titles courtesy of Sunrise that made up most of Daisuke's initial offering of exclusives. Look, Gundam fans, I see you. I'm one of you. I don't know why kids these days can't appreciate giant robots either, but that's just how it is. The rest of Daisuke's starting catalog was pretty sparse since they'd already shopped out the licenses to many of their major titles in the largest international markets. By now, I'm sure this episode feels like a thinly veiled Crunchyroll ad, but the fact is, Crunchyroll had the good fortune of launching with Naruto, the single most popular anime of its era, while Daisuke had two major Aniplex hits that were already showing their age. That, along with some endemic technical issues on their platform, seemed to have made an environment not even One Punch Man and Dragon Ball Super could save. Also, it seems splitting up anime streaming rights by region and selling them piecemeal to major streaming services may have been more profitable for some of Daisuke's investors. In March of 2017, Bandai Namco purchased Daisuke's owner Anime Consortium in Japan, and by October of the same year, the service shut down completely. Anime was already a popular subsection of Netflix's sprawling catalog in 2014, but that year the company started to make public moves to invest in the medium and secure their own exclusives, teaming up with Polygon Pictures to secure many of their future Seinen releases, such as Knights of Sidonia and Ajin Demi Human likely establishing the relationship that would later lead to a number of 3D anime produced by Netflix itself, like the upcoming Pacific Rim and recently released Altered Carbon and Ghost in the Shell. Early 2016 saw Funimation launch their own streaming platform dubbed Funimation Now, but that wasn't the only major announcement they planned that year. 2016 was also the beginning of what was probably the biggest news for anime in America since the start of simulcasting. The big... Crunchyroll Funimation Alliance. Under the tagline Better Together, Crunchyroll and Funimation, now two of the biggest names in anime, not only in the US but worldwide, announced a strategic partnership in which they'd be sharing their libraries with one another. As it turned out, 2017 was the year that two media juggernauts would turn their eyes on anime, and I just gotta discuss the most unfortunate one first. I'm talking, of course, about Amazon's Anime Strike. And I say, of course, but you might not have known about it until I just said it, so... Amazon announced its entry into the anime industry January 17th with a great deal of fanfare.
1: Amazon has just launched its own anime-focused streaming channel called Anime Strike.
0: Anime Strike was the first of what would be several branded add-on channels for Amazon Prime Video, which were essentially ways of compartmentalizing content that they could charge extra money for. So, in addition to your Prime subscription, you'd have to shell out an additional $4.99 to watch the exclusive anime Amazon was planning to load on the service. Amazon wasn't fucking around either. Among their first exclusives was the sane and sex drama Scum's Wish which would be the first of Amazon's new exclusive streaming deal with the lauded Noitamina animation block on Fuji TV, which down the line would land them Inuyashiki, After the Rain, and Banana Fish. They also entered a strategic deal with Sentai Filmworks that would give anime strike an exclusivity window for certain new Sentai titles. After about four months, they even rolled out the ability to download episodes for offline viewing. So even up against Netflix and the new alliance between Crunchyroll and Funimation, Anime Strike was shaping up to be the next major competitor in anime streaming. Or it seemed that way. Let's just say anime fans didn't like Anime Strike very much. You could forgive them for charging another $60 a year for a very limited library of anime, 160 if you didn't already have Prime, but also, Anime Strike just didn't seem to get anime fans and didn't seem very intent on trying to figure us out. And despite Amazon's massive and sophisticated streaming video infrastructure, they just couldn't seem to get anime episodes up on time. They would show up days late often without subtitles and discoverability was a problem with many complaining they were unable to find anime strike anime on amazon even after searching for its exact title amazon publicly blamed late deliverables from sentai for the frequent episode delays which sentai very publicly stated was an outright lie it was a bad look that just got worse with their pr anime strike no commented several journalists looking for interviews And the ones they did get, like ANN's interview with VP of digital video Michael Paul, were uh, awkward. Forbes and IGN each released articles panning Anime Strike, citing its prohibitive costs, and that it just didn't seem to understand anime fans. Despite acquiring many major titles in 2017, including the anime award-winning Made in Abyss, Anime Strike was circling the drain. Just seven days shy of its first year, the channel was finished. Amazon announced they were canning Anime Strike and putting their content back in general population on the rest of Prime Video. Their deal with Sentai ended, with Sentai slowly retrieving their titles off Amazon and eventually losing their exclusive deal with Noitamina as of 2019, which you can probably thank for the promised Neverland, Given, and Sarazanmai showing up on Crunchyroll. But Amazon hasn't gotten out of the anime game entirely, their acquisitions have been more low-key and selective, but they've kept things going with dark fantasy and science fiction anime over the past year, such as Dororo, Blade of the Immortal, Psycho 3, and PET. So some good shows to check out if you still have your mom's login or your college forgot to delete your .edu email. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Later in July, Sentai would announce its own streaming service, HiDive, to stream Sentai and Section 23 anime, which at first looked like any of the services I've already talked about. It had good catalogs, but not much new anime because of Anime Strike's exclusivity window. But in hindsight, this may have been some next level maneuvering from Sentai to prepare for Anime Strike's fallout. However you look at it, Strike is dead and High Dive lives having picked up many of Strike's most acclaimed titles like Made in Abyss and Land of the Lustrous since their exclusivity window ended on Amazon. So thanks for the signal boost, Bezos, and congrats on your unnecessary amount of money.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: In October of still 2017, a year that felt never ending until 2020 came along, Netflix announced a big $8 billion spend on original content, a considerable portion of which was earmarked to produce 30 anime titles in the coming years. On the heels of the Neo Yokio announcement, some fans, with zero taste, thought this was pretty terrible news, considering Netflix had also rubbed those same fans the wrong way earlier in the year by purchasing Trigger's much-anticipated Little Witch Academia, set to premiere in January, and then just not releasing it. So, until its eventual release six months later, no one knew why it wasn't already out or when they could expect it to be released. It turns out this would become Netflix's strategy in the coming years, as showing simulcast schedules for batch releases often months after their conclusion to compete with international dubs. Unless you're in Japan where they broadcast on time. This supports the binge culture that has only become more important as we all stew in our own smells at home. It's hard to tell if that system is working out for them or not because Netflix only recently hinted at maybe releasing viewership numbers and because they're so big they could honestly just buy all that anime and set it on fire and still not hurt their bottom line. Anyway, Little Witch Academia was the first of a sudden Netflix shopping spree. In addition to streaming titles from other anime distributors, Netflix has been pretty reliably picking up exclusive rights to about two to three anime per season, even securing a big, although temporary, you'll soon discover, exclusive streaming deal for the Fate franchise with Aniplex and slapping a Netflix original sticker on it, driving anime aggregator websites crazy every quarter when they try to build seasonal launch lists. Regardless, Netflix's interest in anime is undeniable. They would follow up their 2017 announcement with another in early 2018, claiming they had partnered with Production IG and Bones to produce new anime, and another announcement including Anima, Sublimation, and David Production in 2019. And context should tell you those are very big anime studios, but if it doesn't, I will tell you. They are very big anime studios. Meanwhile, their list of air quotes original exclusive seasonal anime is growing and Netflix has begun announcing a number of new original anime now based on successful live action Netflix series such as Altered Carbon and also uh, licensing all the live action anime from Japan that nobody has ever seen unless you live in Japan. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is Netflix is very into anime. Another smaller announcement in 2017 was that Funimation had been acquired by Sony, which was notable but not unusual since the company had changed hands multiple times. And that's where I'm ending my history. That's it. Now, in case you've been trapped under a rock for the past 10 years, you should know that media companies in the U.S. have been slowly consolidating with Disney leading the charge on their mission to own all 100 of the top 100 blockbuster Hollywood movies every year. And if you didn't know before, I'm sure you've learned in quarantine that Disney has started its own streaming service. 2020 was the starting line for what's already been a free-for-all between Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Video, Disney+, and HBO Max for the eyeballs of every human being on planet Earth. And of course, anime is a big part of that. If Amazon and Netflix suddenly investing in the medium doesn't convince you, then here's some numbers. A report estimated the total revenue generated by the anime industry at about 19 billion USD in 2017. Another report estimated the total revenue generated by the US film industry as a whole at about 43 billion USD with anime on average being considerably cheaper than inflated Hollywood and premier TV budgets like Avengers Endgame's $356 million purse or Game of Thrones $90 million final season budget, which covered a mere six episodes. It's also worth noting that under quarantine, a lot of anime is on hold, but overall animation is the easiest television production to produce, with Netflix going back into production on shows like Big Mouth and things of that sort. Ironically, despite technical advances, we've just about come full circle with the largest media conglomerates in the US, once again being in charge of anime localization. We've also seen the reappearance of anime as a relatively cheap addition to content portfolios, the major differences being the dramatically shrinking distance between Japan and America, and almost 100% rate of title acquisition by Western companies and anime having transformed from something to fill time or disguise as American cartoons into its own mainstream force in the media alongside the MCU and whatever HBO is doing since Game of Thrones ended. There are definite concerns with the way the industry is headed, but the benefits are undeniable. Save for maybe China, Americans are the most privileged group of anime fans, even more so than those in Japan itself. A perfect storm of being one of the largest anime markets in the world, paired with this decades-long consolidation of media, is that all the anime gets licensed but spread across less platforms than even in Japan. So even if it seems like you're forking over subscription fees to an unreasonable number of services to catch all the big shows, realize you've got it better than international fans whose countries don't even get every seasonal title. When you think about it, anime is even easier to keep up with than American TV. Amazon Prime, Netflix, Crunchyroll, Funimation, and High Dive gets you well over 99% of everything out there. Meanwhile, in the sprawling American media landscape, you'll also need a subscription to Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Peacock, and not only Hulu, but make sure to grab Stars, Cinemax, and entertainment add-ons, maybe even Hallmark, if, you, uh, if you're into stuff your grandma watches. And that is to say nothing of specialty and classic services like Shudder and Criterion. And of course, Quibi, how could we possibly forget Quibi? Point is, each of these services probably has a few titles that were formative to your childhood and has some upcoming release that you're interested in. And compared to that, anime has been cordoned off into what appears to be a reasonably small number of subscriptions. Now the face of competition has changed entirely. Co-productions are nothing new in anime, dating back to the beginnings of anime in America in the 60s, and definitely providing a deep enough topic to warrant its own episode if Crunchyroll greenlights a season two. But co-productions had previously been a way to get a particular project created, one of the most famous examples being the 1995 Ghost in the Shell film, a joint production between Kodansha, Bandai Visual, and the UK-based Manga Entertainment. Once again, anime in the UK. Maybe. As previously discussed in our manga episode, up until that film, Ghost in the Shell, along with many Masamune Shiro works, had a considerable following in the West, greater even than in Japan. Investing in the film made sense, and the deal gave manga entertainment exclusive rights to a cult classic that's still being both emulated and outright ripped off by American directors to this day. At the time, it was what you call a smart investment in a specific title with crossover appeal to Western audiences. And yeah, that's still what co-productions are, but also they're a way of getting your foot in the door early on titles you want to license by investing in them years in advance rather than bidding on rights in the lead up to the release. It also goes a long way in developing good relationships with studios and production committees. And Netflix has been loudest on the co-production front, proudly announcing their strategic partnerships since as early as 2014 licensing content from studios directly to dodge the committee system, and just slapping Netflix original on titles after they purchase exclusive rights, whether they were actually involved in production or not. Partly because that's just how TV works in America. Looking back, you can find at least one example of a co-production from most of the major American anime companies that rose and fell in the 90s and 2000s. Crunchyroll itself has been quietly producing anime since early in its existence, counting over 60 co-pros before announcing their original slate in 2020. Funimation first dipped their toes in back in 2016 with Dimension W and have slowly started to accrue their own roster of co-productions since late last year. If you're a proper anime fan that never skips the OP, you may have noticed a growing number of American names and companies in the production credits since 2010. Which brings me to my final point. What even is anime anymore? Japan has been outsourcing work to Korea for about 20 years now, even as foreign animators have been traveling to Japan to work in Japanese studios. International entities are becoming increasingly involved in production and now foreign creators and source material are more prominently featured in new titles. As the number of foreign names increases in anime credits, that inevitably means the number of Japanese names proportionally decreases. Korean webcomics are getting anime. Daft Punk and Porter Robinson had music videos made by anime studios. Studio 4C produced an anime film adaptation of the manga Tekken Concrete, directed by an American animator. A manga by a French Canadian has been adapted into an anime. Marvel Comics have gotten an anime. Batman is a ninja now. or Well, he has been for a while, but this time animated by the studio that does the Jojo's Bizarre Adventure openings. At what point does a production lose the essential Japanese-ness that the term anime implies? Scratch that, what does anime even mean? The very definition of anime is now being tested, used as a marketing term to evoke a popular conceit about the medium rather than an identifier of its point of origin. Nowadays, if you ask Netflix what an anime is, they'll tell you it's a cartoon written by the lyricist of Vampire Weekend starring Jaden Smith, or an animated series made by a studio in Texas based on a 1983 American kid show and written by the director of Mallrats. So where are we headed with all this? Can anime survive its exposure to the American media ecosystem, keeping its identity intact? Or will anime soon just mean cartoons but with blood in them? I can't answer these questions. I don't know. I'm going to have to get back to you in a sequel podcast in 2030. Anime in space. Or in the parallel dimension that apparently exists. All I can do for now is provide you with the wise words of an individual who has provided me with the answers to most of life's questions up until now. My mom.
2: So I, I, I tried to do research. I have no clue what this thing is.
0: Yeah, like nothing at all? You couldn't find anything? they just
2: cartoons. That's all I know. Are you trying to test me?
0: <laughs> A little bit, yeah.
2: Why? Because... I never watched cartoons.
0: But we watched cartoons.
2: It you, wasn't my thing.
0: It was our thing, though.
2: Pinky and the brains. That's it.
0: I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's what we did on Sundays. But there was other stuff after that
2: okay i have no clue i wish i did the research i was too busy
0: you didn't listen to any of the podcasts i listened to one it's all about japanese
2: something right yeah i know tech Tech used to draw them you know he loved uh, japanese cartoons yeah but i cannot make out i may have been sitting there but i never paid attention
0: no there's i mean there was like pokemon is anime that counts
2: oh really Pokemon pokemon is anime yeah. Oh my God! I thought the name of the cartoon is anime.
0: Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> oh
2: no! Pokemon is anime, which means there are several versions,
0: right? Yeah, there's a lot. There's like Pokemon. There's Dragon Ball Z. Um, Dragon
2: Ball Z. I just re- recently heard that.
0: Yeah, and there's um, did you ever watch Speed Racer? In a car. Yeah.
2: They like to drive. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that.
0: Yeah, that's anime I watch too. it
2: I see it, but I just you know, all that stuff was for you guys babysitting tactics. Don't you guys <laughs> you didn't know
0: that? <laughs> Those shows they're, it they're n- just babysitting. It was all for babysitting <laughs> They're not even Did for, they know that? They're, they're not even for kids though. Huh? Eh? Those shows are not for kids though.
2: Yeah, that's why I'm trying to tell you I didn't pay attention. <laughs> yeah so the general name is anime yeah the under anime is like you have all these different versions of cartoons
0: yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. do you think you thought it was one show i thought it was just one <laughs> okay. okay and i just heard of it okay i definitely could have uh, i definitely could have clarified that a few weeks ago
2: yep i didn't know
0: okay maybe that's my fault
2: so pinky and the brain pinky wasn't one of them
0: uh no 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 no. he was not oh okay you guys confused me what else do you want to know um i i think i think maybe that's it i don't know what do you mean that's it there's not that there's there's not that much i just wanted to know if you know if you knew what anime was
2: i waited all this time (laughs) just to tell you in five seconds that anime something is under anime is just a broad name for other cartoons yeah. Geez. <laughs> and I be here all excited, thinking that something else is coming up.
0: Oh no, 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 no! I just was gonna. I just wanted to ask if you, if you knew. listening to Anime in America presented by Crunchyroll. If you enjoyed this, please go to crunchyroll.com slash anime in America to see the site I've talked nonstop about for most of this episode. Special thanks to Kungao. This episode is hosted by me, Yadoye Travis, and you can find me on Instagram at Professor Doye or Twitter at Yodoye OT. This episode is researched and written by Peter Phobian, edited by Chris Lightbody and produced by me, Braith Miller, Peter Phobian, and Jesse Goldsberry. But you know you can watch you can like you can start watching them now if you want. Seriously. Yeah, Anime's not just for kids. You know, there's like there's adult stuff.
2: Really? Like one example.
0: There's Cowboy Bebop is a good one. It's like a it's like a drama. It's sort of like.
2: Okay, tell me what do they do? Like. What?
0: They're uh so the main characters are like they're bounty hunters and so they they fly through space just like tracking down criminals. It's kind of like a, it's like a crime thing. I, you know, I don't like uh, Star Wars. I, kn- I know you don't like Star Wars, but I know you like crime
2: stuff.
0: I know you like crime stuff though. Aha! Uh-huh, now you're talking. Yeah, it's like a crime show. Which one? I have to watch it. Which it's one? Called, it's called Cowboy Bebop. They, like, track down criminals and they take them in for a bounty.
2: But they are all those stick people, though, right? All cartoon folks. It, it's not real. It's not realistic.
0: I mean, it's, it's not real. It is realistic. It's drawn really well.
2: Yeah, see, that's still fake to me. I like more realistic stuff.
0: I think you would like it. Name it again. Cowboy Bebop.
2: Cowboy what? Bebop? Bebop. Cowboy Bebop. Okay. Cowboy Bebop.
0: Yeah. I'll send you a link. Thanks. Bye.